You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. You know, in the, uh, in the first century world, especially in Israel, uh, it was a really interesting time to be alive. The political unrest created this underlying tension that was just always present. On, on the one hand, you had uh, Jews who had this rich heritage and devotion to God. On the other hand, you had uh, Romans, the Romans who uh, were ruthless and now occupying this nation, sometimes even against their will. Uh, the cries and hopes for freedom during the oppressive Roman rule were incredibly frequent. Jews held on to this promise that God had given them thousands of years earlier of a of Messiah, a deliverer, a man who would redeem their people and their hopes were would finally free them from Roman domination. And, and into that historical setting comes the birth of this child to a couple who lived in Nazareth, Mary and Joseph. This, this baby wasn't born into opulence. He, he didn't come into this world uh, with, with rich wealth, but he did come with some amount of fanfare. Shepherds came as a response to a choir of angels that appeared to them and, and worshipped at the feet of this little baby. And, and, and magi traveled hundreds of miles with expensive gifts to give to this newborn king of sorts. And as Jesus, this little baby, would grow up, he would learn his earthly father's trade being a carpenter. And as he reached the age of 30, he would step into his earthly ministry. And from the beginning, you could tell something was different with this guy named Jesus. He, he wasn't just some uh, cult leader or rogue religious uh, fanatic. He, he claimed to be the son of God, but he backed it up with miraculous signs and wonders. Some, some even wondered, could this actually be the Messiah? Could this be the moment that we're finally free from Roman rule? And as he became a Jewish rabbi at the age of 30, he did what most rabbis in that time period would do. He started to identify and choose students, or what we might call disciples, to follow his teaching. Now, the difference was he, he did something a little out of the ordinary. You know, most, most rabbis in that time, uh, they would go to the elite Hebrew schools, the Harvard and Yale, so to speak, of that day, and they would choose the cream of the crop, the best of the best, to be their students or their disciples. Jesus did something totally countercultural. He he didn't choose the best. He, he he the rabbis chose these because they wanted their teachings to go on, teachings about Jewish scripture. They wanted to invest their teaching, their perspective, their commentary on Jewish scriptures to the best of the best, so that the legacy of their teaching would go far beyond their years. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. He goes to the overlooked, the outcast, the, the sometimes despised of society. And he chooses them to be his disciples, his students. And, and over the next three weeks, we're, we're going to be looking uh, at, at some of the stories of the men that Jesus chose, why he chose them, and how it impacts us and what God chooses us for in 2021. One of the great examples of Jesus' sometimes outrageous decisions about his disciples was this young Jewish man named Matthew. 
Now, when you hear the name Matthew, you probably recognize it because he was the author of the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. But, but if that's all you know about Matthew, you're missing the crazy journey that brought Matthew to the point where he wrote one of the Gospels. Imagine with me the, the most hated people in society or hated groups in society. Maybe it's Browns fans, um, Ravens fans, probably worse, Cowboys fans. Uh, or, or, or really, maybe it's politicians or IRS inspectors or, or, or the always dreaded parking meter officer who's, you know, waiting for you to leave your car so you can put a ticket on your windshield or, or, or wherever it may be. Uh, those in, in the first century, the most hated groups were those who were sellouts, Jews who sided with the Romans. They were, in a sense, uh, basically traitors. They were spitting almost on their Jewish heritage. And the worst of the worst of this group were the tax collectors. Tax collectors were, were Jews who were literally taking money from their fellow Jews to support the Romans. The worst of the worst. If you or I were writing the story of the long-awaited arrival of the Jewish Messiah, this deliverer, this rescuer, a heroic figure that was finally going to deliver the Jews, the last person we would ever have the Messiah choose as one of his students or disciples would be a tax collector. And yet, it's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus finds himself in the coastal city of Capernaum, right on the coast, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he teaches for a little bit, and after teaching, he goes up to this Roman tax booth. And, and this booth most likely uh, collected a tax from people who were crossing the Sea of Galilee or bringing goods into that region. And, and, and the man sitting behind that booth collecting the tax was none other than Matthew. And Jesus uh, walks up to the booth and listen to what happens. It's recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 9. What's really cool about Matthew's Gospel is, like, Matthew literally wrote this. This is like his story. It's like his own biography, so to speak, in this one verse, this one moment. And in verse 9, he says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. He only says two words, uh, just one sentence. He says, follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Two words, follow me. That's all he says. And Matthew gets up and follows him. Now, now understand this probably was not the first time Matthew ever met Jesus. Uh, there, there, most scholars believe that there was probably some uh, encounter with Jesus prior to this and awareness of Jesus' teaching and what, what he stood for and all of that. Um, but this was the moment that changed his life. Uh, th- this, this first encounter wouldn't just change his life, it would change the course of history. Think, think about this. Uh, this lowly, despised tax collector, a man that most likely would have been looked down on everywhere he went in society by his fellow Jews, maybe spit on or mistreated. Why? Because he was a tax collector. And everybody knew. It wasn't like a private thing. He sat at this tax booth uh, for everyone to see. Everyone knew Matthew was a tax collector. He was a sellout. This lowly despised tax collector would become one of only 12 disciples chosen by Jesus to, to advance the kingdom of God in the world and to start what we know as the church today. Only 12 men in all of history, and all of the, the human population in the world, he's chosen as one of them. And this is what I think is so remarkable about Jesus and his ministry. He didn't always do what was politically correct or socially accept, acceptable, but he saw people beyond the stereotypes and filters of culture. 
He, he saw a bigger picture. In fact, sometime after Jesus called Matthew to be one of his disciples, Matthew would uh, come back to his hometown and he'd throw this big party at his, his house, the house he grew up in, uh, and invited all of his old friends to introduce them all to Jesus. This party would become scandalous in the region, not because of what was happening, but because of who was actually there. Luke's gospel, chapter 5, is recorded what was taking place. Verse 29, here's what it says. Then Levi, and Levi is Matthew's family name. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The real question these religious leaders were asking asking these disciples, is how could someone of such high stature like Jesus, after all, he's a rabbi, he's someone that people look up to and follow and listen to, how could someone with the stature of Jesus ever associate with people of such low stature, like these tax collectors and sinners, the lowest members of society? Maybe, maybe you've asked those questions before. Maybe not in that way. Maybe you've asked that. You see people in church or in a certain place, and you're like, eh, they don't quite belong. Why? They don't fit. Why? Why are they there? You know, I remember nine years ago, uh, that question being asked of someone that visited our church here. Uh, they, 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 this person had walked into the sanctuary. They looked a little rugged, had tattoos all over their arms. They didn't quite fit in with all the folks at that time that were in their Sunday best suits and ties. Uh, a person that knew them previously came up to them and said, I can't believe you're at church dressed like that with all those tattoos. There's no place in church for that. I, I, I remember, never forget how irritated and frustrated I was when one of their family members shared that with me. I thought, what in the world? Like, is there supposed to be some dress code that we check at the door? Like, if you don't meet these standards, you're not allowed in? Like, we have some kind of insider's club? Well, what's the deal? Do we only let certain people we approve of or look like us into church now? Is that how far we've come? And, and I, I would hope that you know, nine years later, we've made some progress on that front, that we, we aren't like that, but I would say in our society, we still struggle with this. See, this wasn't just a first century issue. This is a human issue. These are things that we still battle with today. Just the last year has shown us how divided we are as a nation and as a people. We stereotype, we label, we exclude anyone that's not like us. But Jesus clears the air on the debate as to who can come to him and who can't and his response to these leaders, this question that they asked. Matthew chapter nine, verse 12, here's what it says. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's what Jesus is saying, I love this. He's saying, hey, you guys are the righteous ones. Get less, listen, you guys go do what you're doing. I'm here for, for those who are far from me. I'm here for those who need help. I'm, I'm here for those that don't know me, those that are struggling. And, and this is such an important idea that Jesus lived out. You can read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, over and over and over again. Jesus lived this out. Jesus partied with outcasts and the hated of society because those people were more important than his reputation. I want to say that again because, man, we need to learn this as a society. And I would hope 
As followers of Jesus, you say, man, Calvary Church is my home church and other people know that. I would hope that they see that in you. That, that Jesus partied with outcasts in the hate of society because they, they were more important. Those people were more important than his reputation. That's what we're supposed to live out. Think, think about this in our modern context. And, and I'm going to step on some toes, but just stick with me for a second. H- how would all of your Republican friends feel if you had coffee with a really well-known Democrat and you kept your mask on the whole time? Or, or, or how about this? How would your Democrat friends feel if you had lunch with a really well-known Republican and you actually shook their hand at the end? Or, or, or maybe this. What, what would happen if you befriended a very outspoken homosexual or a publicly practicing Muslim or someone that has an entire different belief system than you? What, what would people say? What would the murmurers say? What, what, would, what would all the whispers say? How would you feel about that? that that'd be really uncomfortable. Think about what Jesus did. He took the ones that the religious elite said shouldn't be and he chose them to be his disciple. See, Jesus loved the outcast because he didn't come to this earth to build a strong reputation. He came to value lost people, period. His reputation, he couldn't care less. Whoever his PR person was was probably pulling their hair out because Jesus continually did things that shot himself in the foot as far as a public relations standpoint. At the peak of his ministry, he's crucified. At at the best possible moments, he walks away and disappears. He goes off and prays. When when he can maximize on a crowd, he he walks away from it all. He he was the worst PR person in the world because he wasn't worried about his reputation. He's worried about valuing people. As a church, we aren't called to do what everyone outside these walls would applaud or what the religious uh, elite of our society would praise. We are called to be a bridge for those who are far from God, period. That's it. We're not here to to get fanfare and everyone say, man, that church is awesome or that person is awesome. That's not what we're We're here to point people ultimately to Jesus. We are called to build friendships, relationships with those who are different from us, even when it's uncomfortable. We're we're called to reach across the aisle and recognize that, that, that we might sometimes... Uh, dislike people, but Jesus loves them. And that we are called to reach those even that we dislike. Because these are people that Jesus loves and died for. In fact, this is what Jesus said earlier in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Jesus said this, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Can you say everyone? Everyone. everyone. Do you know what the, the, the original Greek for the word everyone means? Everyone. It's really deep. It's really profound. I spent hours researching that. It took forever. Talked to like 10 Greek scholars. It means Everyone. Everyone, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. And what? Glorify your Father in heaven. That everything we do is to point people to Jesus. The problem is this doesn't really come naturally to us. Like we don't just wake up in the morning and, 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 and go about this being a light to the world. That, that's not easy. In our human nature, 
We set fire to the world we don't like or is different than us. That's like our, our natural tendency. Keep it away from us. Keep a distance. But Jesus said, don't set a fire to it. Be a light in it. Don't set it on fire. Be a light in it. That runs contrary to our wiring, our natural tendency. So the question is, how do we make that shift? How do we turn that corner? How do we do that? Each of Jesus' disciples made that shift. Do you know what the difference was? The difference was they were close to Jesus. And, and here's the simple, simple idea. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we see others as he does. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we see others as he does. It's tough to view the world through Christ's lens, through his eyes. It's really hard. He was the son of God, savior of the world, the Messiah. But the closer we are to him, the more time we spend with him, the more our perspective starts to change and shift. We start to see people as he did. He, he hung out with all the wrong people. The religious leaders said that. He hung out with all the wrong people. But he wasn't there for their reputation or their accolades. He was building something, to be honest, that would far outlive any of those religious leaders. 2,000 years later, none of those religious leaders, their teachings or what they, they thought has lasted. What Jesus established with the outcasts of society still stands as still the strongest organization in the world, the church still making a difference, pointing people to Jesus. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we see others as he does. As the worship team comes this morning, we see this play out in the final moments that Jesus had with his disciples as they uh, prepared for Christ's crucifixion. Now, the disciples didn't know that. The disciples didn't know that uh, Jesus was preparing for his crucifixion. All they knew was they were celebrating this Jewish feast of the Passover. And, and, and if you were a Jew, uh, you did this every year. This wasn't like an abnormal thing. Celebrating the Passover was about as regular as regular can be. And Jesus gathers these disciples together. He knows he's going to be crucified here in just a few days and rise again. And here's what he says, and, and it's recorded in Luke chapter 22, verse 14. It says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. So let me paint the picture for you a second. So there's, there's food at the table here, okay? There's drink, and they're all reclined at this table. And, and this is what's remarkable. At, at this table, uh, imagine, there, there's a, a, a tax collector, former tax collector sitting here, Matthew. There's Simon, a former zealot, which is basically a, a revolutionary that we're hoping to overthrow Roman rule. A tax collector collecting money from Jews for the Romans. A man by the name of Simon who's trying to overthrow Roman rule. You got fishermen, tradesmen, all these different backgrounds, different personalities. Read the Gospels and see there are some crazy personalities, different backgrounds and perspectives on the world, all gathered around the same table. They came together from all the different places, and they were one family. And what made this table so unique was that Jesus had invited each of them to join him at the table, knowing all their backgrounds, knowing all the craziness that they carried and the, the backstories that they brought with them. 
he invited them together to become one family. And then he says this to them, verse 15 of, of Luke 22. He says, uh, I, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, hey guys, this Passover meal is going to take on a whole new definition and form. What we now, on this side of the cross, call communion. After taking the cup, he gives, gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them saying, listen to this. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, what I've done for you, I now commission you to do. And it's not about eating the communion elements. You know, there's communion elements for those in person sitting in front of you in your pew, but it's not just about eating those. What was Jesus saying? He's saying, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, do what I have done for others. Bring people together that don't belong, that are different. Because at the table, we become a family. At the table, we encounter and are transformed by Jesus. Each and every one of us have a story where someone invited us to the table. Someone invited us to church, to Jesus. Someone invited us to the table. We didn't necessarily deserve it. We didn't earn it. Someone invited us. And at the table, we're transformed into the image of Christ. This is what God has called us to do. This is what we have the privilege to do today, to celebrate the table of communion. But we aren't simply commanded to eat from the table. We are called to invite others to the party, others to the banquet, others to the table. And if you can take your communion elements this morning, we're going to celebrate communion together. And, and my, my approach here with communion isn't about a religious obligation. I, I know there are certain uh, circles and, and there are certain veins of, of Christian faith that, that hold highly to the practice of communion. And I respect that. I want you to understand, communion isn't about the practice of partaking of communion. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. The do isn't about the action of eating bread and drinking from a cup. The do is about the inviting to eat from the bread and drink from the cup. Jesus called us to be like him as we invite others to the table. And as we take the bread and the cup this morning, we say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for someone that invited me to the table. That when I was still a sinner, when I was far from God, you had such grace and mercy on me that you invited me to the table, that you welcomed me to the table, welcomed me to the family. You didn't exclude me or shun me, but you allowed me to come in with all of my baggage and all my issues. You still love me enough. The Bible says in Romans that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. Thank you, Jesus, for salvation. Thank you for inviting me to the table. And the second prayer, God, empower me. Holy Spirit, empower me. Equip me to invite others to the table. The table isn't just set up for us. The table is set up for them, whoever them might be in your world. Who are those that have no place at the table? And how can we invite them to that table?
That's what Jesus did. As we pray and partake of these items together this morning, my hope isn't that we would just say, oh, I checked my box, took communion, okay, we're good. My hope is that you would have this burden, this burning desire in your heart that there's a responsibility in taking communion. The responsibility isn't to take it again in another month or so. The responsibility is to live out what it stands for. A Jesus that would come to this earth, give up all that he had in heaven, the right hand of the Father, come to earth, take form of a man, give his life for us to invite those who don't deserve it to have all that God has for them. That's what God has called us and challenged us to do. Let's pray before we partake of these items together. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for communion. God, I thank you for the example and the model you've set for us. God, you don't ask us to do what you haven't done yourself. God, I pray this morning, let us have a new sense of gratitude for what you have done for us. That you invited us to the table. That someone invited us to the table. Someone prayed for us. Some, someone, someone to be willing, even when we weren't deserving of it, worthy of it, to invite us to the table to meet you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for that. We're so grateful for that. Lord, let us live our lives in context of that gratitude. But Lord, I pray that we don't stop there. Holy Spirit, empower us, equip us to be willing to keep our eyes open to those that have no place at this table, that we can invite them to meet Jesus. Lord, that we would be willing to step out of our comfort zone, step out of our normal human perspective and see things, Jesus, as you do. And Lord, to be willing to invite people to the table. I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. Thank you for your sacrifice to make all of that possible. Your body and your blood that was shed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Would you partake of those items together this morning? As you're partaking of those items, I think it would be a tragedy for us to say, okay, that's it. You know, we did our religious stuff, let's move on. And to not take the time. We have a little bit of time here. For those watching online, those in person, we have a little time still to spend some time with Jesus. We're going to sing a song here. And I want to encourage you, block everything else out. We've got, we don't get time blocked out much. We're so busy. Our schedule is so packed. So many things that we have to do. There's nothing you have to do right now. But just focus on Jesus. And if you want to stand with me or, or if you might feel more comfortable sitting, we're going to sing a song we sang earlier. It's called Here Again. And I love this song because it talks about Jesus, I'm here again. Here I am. I just need you. Not enough. I just need you today. And I don't know what you're facing, what you're walking through, but I promise you, you're not enough. That's not a negative statement. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He's the one that overcomes. We're going to sing this song together. If you could stand with me this morning as we uh, go into worship. Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. I thank you, Lord, that you are more than enough. God, I pray in these few moments that you would block out distractions. God, everything that might cloud our view or pull our attention. God, that we could just focus this time on you. Jesus, that we could get close to you, closer to you, that we could see people as you do. Thank you, Lord, for that. Holy Spirit, minister and meet to us, meet with us in this place.
This is Pastor Nick Poole, the lead pastor at Calvary. We're so glad you joined us for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. At Calvary Church, we're passionate about leading people into an overflowing life with Jesus. We would love the opportunity to connect with you on your faith journey and hear what God is doing in your life or join you in prayer for any needs you might have. You can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com or send us an email at info at calvaryirwin.com. On our website, you'll find previous week's messages, a list of upcoming events, as well as resources designed to help you take those next steps on your journey of faith. See you next week, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.